Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. If you're watching this on replay, or even if you're a MAPT user, Dr. Scott Wright, you're available for one-on-one help. You were, before we hit record, you were telling me about a mock interview that you did yep. with a student, and really what the, the a large percentage of the calls that you have, and, and I have as well, talk about what you were just talking about in terms of what those calls really are focused on. Yes. So this was a interview preparation uh, call and, um, you know, we did some mock questions and answers and I gave him feedback on, on kind of what I thought in terms of his answer and his delivery. But my experience is a lot, a big percentage of the calls that I have on interview preparation is calming the students down. They're super nervous. They're freaking out about, um, are they going to answer it right? Or, you know, are they going to do something wrong? Are they going to mess it up or whatever? And so I'm just trying to bolster confidence and uh, give them some uh, some help in terms of, uh, uh, you know, making them feel like uh, like they, you know, a lot of it is is sort of that, that question, you know, was he, this guy was even telling me, was it a mistake? And I'm, I'm thinking that they interviewed there, they inter- invited me for an interview, you know, <laughs> and it was a mistake. And, and now they're forcing themselves to go through with it just because they said they wanted to, but it was really a mistake. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You need to calm yourself down. So that's a big part of it. It's just, it's just, you know, given, uh, given him some ego boost and, and confidence building and, and helping him see uh, some things about himself that I'm seeing as a as a you know objective person. I've never met him before, and neither would these interviewers have ever met him before. And so I'm giving him my personal thoughts about things that that I see that are good and, and really beneficial, and maybe a few things that he can work on. And so yeah, a big part of it is just you know just trying to make him feel good and calm them down a little bit. Yeah, but it, yeah, but it's it's, it's a lot think- of fun. Yeah, I think a lot of it is uh, more more therapy session than pre. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Definitely is what it feels like. That is exactly right. Uh, Never really oh, saw cool. myself as a therapist. Question. Oh yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, you you are. That's okay. <laughs> uh, so our student is asking. Uh, I have a two point six GPA, and plan on earning all A's from my post back. That's a good plan. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, my, my screen just freaked out. Uh, it would bump my sciences to a 3.5. It's not too competitive, but it has, it has that upward trend. Good enough. Thanks guys. Yeah. All right. There's, there's that one. We, we've been talking about this a lot. Like I have a 3.5. It's horrible. Yeah. 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 Three, five, three, five. It's not bad. And, uh, you know, two, six is not great. Um, but you know, I, I think, what the what this questioner is really focusing in in on is the cumulative GPA that he or she is trying to bolster up to a three five, assuming that they make all A's in in their postback program. 
and that's fine. You know, I think having the having the cumulative GPA uh, on an upward trend like that is good. But I I really want to emphasize that I think that both you know all three of the application services do produce a postback GPA for the medical schools that that is distinct from the cumulative or the freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, whatever, GPAs and all that stuff. And so I think what postback students, non-traditional students really are trying to do is say, you know, I'm I'm a better student than my cumulative shows that I am. Even if the cum, let's say in this particular student's case, the cumulative only gets up to a 3-2 for whatever reason, it only gets up to a 3-2 then the postback GPA is going to be distinct from that. And it's going to be a 3.7 or a 3.8 or whatever. And uh, that really shows a distinctive uh, increase. And it shows that this student is doing what they have to do to, to, to produce a uh, academic coursework that says I can do this in medical school. And so, yes, the, to, the, to the point of the question or the bump in the sciences to a 3.5 would be, would be great. The, the upper trend, uh, yes, definitely good enough to apply, and I, th I think that would be great. You can match that with a, a, a strong and competitive uh, MCAT score. I think, uh, I think that would definitely uh, be a, a real boost in, in the uh, chances of that student. Talk about the, uh, the growth that that shows right a, a lot of times yeah. students students forget that it's it's not just the numbers but it's the story behind the yes numbers. As, as an admissions committee member when you see someone who you can clearly see they struggled and you don't necessarily know why unless they lay it out for you in their personal statement but you, you see early struggle like that and then you mm -hmm. go wow they really turned it around yeah and, and they don't really focus on that final gpa going okay that's quote unquote good enough but they focus on this student had some adversity and they overcame it and they've mm -hmm. turned it around that to me is bigger than the final gpa would, would oh absolutely Come completely agree with that. I think that students, um, you know, we all have our story. We all have our journey. And, uh, you know, some students coming out of high school are not prepared as well as they should be for going into college work. And freshmen, sometimes even sophomore years are a struggle, figuring out how to study, figuring out what's important, uh, committing themselves to be living independently if they're living on campus or, you know, working and, and going to school and, and doing other activities. I mean, there's a lot going on. And I think I think you're right. You know, one of the things that the medical schools really look for is resilience and uh, adaptability in the face of difficulties. And uh, and so for a student to show throughout the, the their coursework that they uh, really were growing uh, in a personal uh, way, in an academic way, that they were figuring it out and that they were using the resources at their institution to help them. And uh, so if that includes a post-bac experience or graduate school or whatever, then, you know, that's that's a good sign. And, and I definitely agree with you, uh, Ryan, that that's, that's me very meaningful to an admissions committee uh, member or, or the, the, you know, an entire committee, when they see that kind of commitment, they see that growth and they really read about it in the per, in the personal statement or other essays, whether it's uh, secondary essays or, or whatever, 
that they see that uh, that this student really was reflecting on kind of what happened. You know, we, we hear stories all the time. I know you do, Ryan, with uh, about first generation college students who are at, so far outside of uh, their comfort zone because they have no assistance at home, no support at home, and not because the people at home don't want to support them. They just don't know anything. And, uh, and so they're, tr they're really doing it all on their own and they're figuring it out as they go. And, uh, that's a, that, that's a very meaningful, uh, you know, that's very meaningful for an admissions committee, I think, to see that kind of growth and that kind of reflection that says, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing and I, and I really had to depend a lot on X, Y, and Z to, to, to improve. So absolutely. I, I know um, the one time uh, that I was graced with your presence when we were both speaking in Toronto at the, the admissions conference, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that that came up during the conference was it's it's not what it's not necessarily what the student did, but it was what did the student do with the resources that they had? And yes, it seems to be what you're getting at there. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And see the same thing. And the reason this is really important is because the exact same thing is going to happen when they transition into medical school. So high school to college, there's a vast difference in, in many cases, if not most, in terms of the level of uh, uh, commitment they're going to have to make in terms of the amount of uh, of studying they're going to have to do, the amount of information they're going to have to learn. Same transition occurs between college and medical school where uh, a lot of students uh, are not prepared. And so they have to depend on their peers and they have to depend on resources at the institution to, uh, to help them figure out. I, I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard a medical student say, I had to relearn how to how to study because it wasn't working. What I did in college was not working in medical school at all. And so I had to really figure it out. So yeah. that's a, it's, that's a big, it's, it's a big step. And so I, I definitely think that uh, learning how to use the resources that you have and those people around you, that's, that's really important. So absolutely. It's a, it's a great, um, you know, it's, it's great for when students are able to reflect and, and really learn those less, those deep lessons. Yeah. I agree. And really turning it around, right? I, I was doing, um, uh, I, I was recording an episode of the old pre-meds podcast a little bit ago. And, uh, I talked a lot about creating an application and really how students tend to focus on not telling their story, but focusing on the skills and traits that the student thinks that they're, evaluator the reader mm -hmm. wants the student mm -hmm. to have mm -hmm. and and they're completely avoiding that personal reflection on what everything has meant to me yeah. and i'm just going to turn around and tell you everything i think you want to hear and yeah it just comes off completely generic and and, mm -hmm. and it, it is a huge disconnect from what really connects with that person so yeah absolutely i agree with that completely well, cool. Uh, keep yeah. asking your questions here yeah. in the group uh, as we yeah. are live here in the MAPS mm -hmm. members group. Um, mm. Dr. Wright. Yes, sir. For Texas, mm -hmm. 
let's let's talk about Texas specifically. We we've talked a bunch about why Texas is Texas, why they have their own application service, why they focus so much on in state. Mm -hmm. Do you what is the role in terms of making sure that students who train in Texas or another state really stay in state? What do institutions do above and beyond accepting students from that state? Obviously public institutions. What do they do above and beyond that to potentially keep students in that state to practice? Yeah, so that's a good question. And, and the answer to that is super mixed and not real compelling, frankly. Um, states like to think that, you know, our tax dollars are helping the, the medical schools, obviously. And uh, most of the medical schools in the state, the vast number of the uh, vast majority of the schools, medical schools are public supported medical schools. And so they, the, the legislature in their infinite wisdom or lack thereof uh, believes that um, we should, we should serve citizens of the state of Texas and that by doing so that's going to affect uh, the, the, what students will do after they graduate. Yeah. And, and it makes sense unless you look at the data. <laughs> but we don't need data. Come on, right? we don't need data. <laughs> Who needs I have science? my opinion. I don't yeah, need the data. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but the what the really what the data show is that it, it's really much more important where you do your residency than where you go to medical school in, in terms of what's going to happen. Now, you know what what I think is that uh, the medical schools try to do a, you know a, a reasonably good job of of uh, encouraging their students to, um, to uh, you know, come back to the state after residency or whatever. And about, I would say, at most of the medical schools in Texas, um, it, it varies a little bit by medical schools, but I know, you know, somewhere around 50% or so stay in the state for residency, uh, which basically means that half of them are staying in the state and half of them are going somewhere else. And the half that goes somewhere else uh, may or may not come back to Texas to, to, to actually serve uh, in, in the state in terms of medical schools. And, and there's really very little that a school can do to encourage that. Because of residency match rules and regulations and stuff, the schools can't really force students to, to do anything. And they can't, you know, there's really no way that you can say, well, if you'll stay in stay here for residency, we'll do X, Y, and Z, or, you know, there, there's some real uh, uh, accreditation, you know, rules that go, uh, that surround that kind of uh, activity. <clears throat> because what you, you know, what the, what the, what the residency programs are doing and what the accreditation rules really focus on is, is students really having the, the ability to, to go into specialties that they really want to go into, as well as go to programs where they really feel like this is where I want to go, you know, and if that's in, you know, Minnesota, then great. If that's in California, then, then great, you know, and so we used to talk about this a lot in, uh, in, uh, we had a, we have a program in Texas called JAMP, J-A-M-P, and which really focuses on uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged kids and getting them into medical school. And, and it's uh, so a, it's a great program. It's been going for, I guess about 20, 20, 
yeah, about probably about 20 years now. And, uh, and, and we talked a lot, it's only for Texas residents. And we talk a lot about how do we keep those students in, in the state after medical school, because they're going to go to a, a Texas medical school. How do we keep them in Texas after medical school for the residency? And we went through all kinds of iterations trying to figure that out. And, and you know, it was just not, it was not possible to do that. And that's frustrating to legislators and to other government officials, but it is what it is. And so, the, you know, the long story uh, or the short story to this is, is that, you know, every state wants to have doctors that serve their state, particularly states that have large rural populations uh, and small town populations. There are, there are really literally counties in West Texas where there are no doctors in the entire county. Now, granted, there are more cows in that county than there are people. <laughs> are there so vets in the county? Yeah, I, see, that's actually a much more important question for a lot of them out there. Uh, but, you know, up until uh, really up until next year, there's only been one vet school in the whole state of Texas. And really? wow. uh, yeah, yeah, there's, vet there's not a lot of vet schools. There's like less than there's 30 not, vet schools yeah, in the country. There's not a whole lot. Yeah. So the, the Texas Tech University is starting a new vet school out in West Texas. Uh, I think it starts next year. Oh, and yeah. uh, and that's a, been a huge deal because uh, the, the other vet school, Texas A&M, the original vet school was, you know, super opposed to having competition in the state. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the the, that what they saw as maybe uh, limiting their funding because the state would then want to fund, you know, the, uh, the new school. So anyway, it's a long story, but, um, but, you know, every state wants to have, um, wants to keep students in their, in their state to uh, serve their population. And that makes total sense. But the way things are structured in American uh, medical education right now, it's really, it's hard to do that with any degree of certainty. Um, another question here that came up when I'm asking my professor for LORs, is there anything I should ask them specifically? Is it appropriate to ask them to mention certain things in the letter? So, uh, Dr. Wright, I would like a letter from you and I would like you to mention that, uh, I am the most genius student you have ever seen. <laughs> right. And I would like you not to mention all the nefarious things that I yeah. did in your class. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that um, what I would do if I were a student, and, and I think we've talked about this on, a, on occasion before, is, is I would say to, to the letter writer, or to the potential letter writer, would it, would you be willing to write me a strong letter of support and just put it out there and just say, what I'm looking for is a good, strong letter that's going to help my application. Are you able to do that? And, you know, that gives some professors the ability to the out to say, I don't think I can do that for you or. Uh, I'm happy to write you a letter, but uh, I don't really know you that well or, you know, whatever. And so I, I, I don't know that I would find it appropriate to, to be too specific about what you want them to include in the letter. Uh, I just think it would be appropriate to ask them if they're, if they're able to or willing to write a strong letter of support for you. For your med school application and then and then just leave it at that and then you can give them a resume and your personal statement and other things to yeah. to help them you know with it with writing that letter uh but i think going beyond that it really kind of steps a, a little outside the, the 
bounds of uh, appropriateness. Yeah, and and my kind of spidey senses go. What's what's the point of asking for a letter of recommendation if you're just gonna kind of force feed them what to write? Right. What's right. what's the point of that? Because then it's not their own letter of recommendation. It's just what you're. What again? We we fall into this trap as pre meds of quote unquote, knowing what the medical school wants. And so you frame everything in your application. You're telling your letter writers to put this in because this is what they need to know. And this is what they want to know. And, and we're, we're moving further and further away of here's who I am, take it or leave it kind of, of mentality, which I, I think, uh, is much better for schools to, to understand who you are as a student. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that completely you know and i i i have seen letter writers before and this in my view is totally unethical where i've seen a letter writers i have actually had students who came and said that all the, the time it happens the, all the, the time the professor said all the, time. the professor said write the letter for me and yep. i will sign it and i i mean to me that is just ah oh, unbelievable <laughs> un unfreaking believable yeah. So yeah, don't do that. In in my uh, it's funny in my in my new book that that I need to finish the the application book. I specifically talk about that because yeah. it comes up all the time. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I agree with you. I I don't like it. It's kind of against the rules in some in some respect, but it's also the reality for a lot of students. And so yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I kind of address it in the book and I say, yeah. if this is a letter that you absolutely have to have, then do what you need to do. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's I think it, it's one of those things where it really puts the onus on the, on the uh, student and on their sort of philosophical, ethical, uh, moral stances or whatever you want to call it. To say, well, I'm not going to, you know, as much as I would like that that professor to to have a letter for me, mm. if he's that slime, if he or she is that slimy, and and are going to do it that way, then I'm not going to participate in, in that. I had a a mortgage banker do that to me one time, uh, and basically told me that I should lie in my mortgage application, <clears throat> and and I was like. And he said, if you do this, then there won't be any issues. And I, I, I just refused. I said, I'm not going to do that. I, I don't care if it means I don't get the mortgage. I, 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 my own personal responsibility is to integrity on my part. And yeah. that's not saying that's no judgment on anybody else, but it was just my sort of stance. And so, you know, I think that it does put the onus on the student to say, you know, what am I willing to do uh, to uh, make you know, make this happen and, or how important is that letter or whatever. So, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. All right. Uh, big, big long question. question. Texas resident here. I graduated with a 2.9 science GPA, a 3.19 cumulative GPA. It took six years to graduate with my BA in anthropology. It took longer than quote normal due to work injuries and helping my family. No MCAT projected a March, 2021. I was recommended by another Texas Adcom member to complete an SMP. I'm currently doing the program through UNTHSC. For a student mm -hmm. in my situation, what GPA do you want to see students graduate an SMP with, and what MCAT score? I do have an E. I do have EMT experience doing 911 and helping migrants on something, something. Uh, yeah, for that. probably on the Texas border or something like that. Potentially, yeah. 
Yeah, and and just to clarify, SMP is, spe is special, special master's, master's program, program. and uh, the the UNT Health Science Center. Uh, that's the University of North Texas uh, program in, in it's a special master's program in, in Fort Worth at the med school there. It's a fairly large program um, that does pretty well. I know the, well, the, the director of that program just recently retired. Uh, and uh, I think that it's longstanding. It does a great, great job. Uh, and so, you know, I think what, what I would want to see in that at the UNT program is very strong work. You know, uh, you can say, and, and I get it. And I'm not, I'm not discounting the things that this questioner uh, said caused their lackluster undergraduate experience with a two nine science and a three o cum GPA, because um, they say, you know, due to work, injuries, helping my family, etc. And I'm not minimizing that at all, not at all. But it is to say. That with a with a GPA like that, a two nine science GPA, three one nine, basically three two o cum, the med schools really don't have anything there to hang their hat on in terms of can this student do the work? You know, is it is it going to be a, a severe struggle? Uh, is the if the student gets injured or sick or something in med school, is it going to fall apart? If the family needs help, is it going to fall apart is the student gonna you know crash and burn in med school uh or whatever and so what i think um what i think i want to see out of that kind of student in a in the master's program is very strong work and i, I would say three five or better uh is is what i would want to see now you, you know you're basically doing all sciences in the master's program with a little bit of you know a, a spattering of some other things like ethics and things like that but um but you're doing mostly science work at the at the med school level, and uh, and I, I think you you would want a, a good strong GPA to to say to medical schools, I can do this, and then you're going to match that with a, a a good competitive MCAT score, and then that would do a lot to to uh, saying to to medical schools, I can do this, and here's the evidence, and that's what they're looking for. They're looking for something to 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 really be able to give them concrete evidence that says that you're capable of doing the work at a high level. What about for the student who struggles in undergrad because of this kind of work injuries, helping family mm -hmm. goes to an S and P still has work family, hopefully is over mm -hmm. the injuries still mm -hmm. doesn't do as well. Maybe they do better, but not as well. And they're still mm -hmm. going, well, I'm still working and still taking care of my family that the medical school what like choice do they have other than well you're going to get to medical school and hopefully you're not working a lot of medical schools have rules against working yep. during medical school yep. uh, but family issues other stuff if if that's a constant in your life are you going to be focused on medical school yeah or are you going to have all this other stuff and and some part of me goes well that's not fair for the student who has a lot of responsibilities at home but Again, the, the job of the medical school is to choose right. the students who are, are gonna be able, going to be yeah. a good fit. And number two, going to be able to finish medical school in time. Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. And, you know, schools are cognizant also of, you know, the amazing amount of debt 
that students incur when they go into medical school because they can't work. They're borrowing not only to pay tuition, but to, to pay living expenses and, and all that stuff. And they're incurring a lot of debt. The last thing the medical school wants is for this student to have, you know, fifty, seventy-five, a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt after after year two and get kicked out or have to leave. And so then they have nothing to show for it in terms of a degree or anything. And they get and they still have all this debt and they're going to default on the debt and it's going to be terrible for the school as well as for the student. And, you know, it's just a disaster. And so, you know, I, I, I see this a lot with students, not always, but sometimes I think it's more common in, in um, I, I've seen it a lot with certain uh, URM groups where uh, particularly the Hispanic community, where there's a huge family you know, component there and, and there's a lot of responsibilities and students feel compelled to assist their families. And, and I am so supportive of that notion of the, the deep family ties, but it does make it difficult uh, for the students often to, uh, to see a path forward. And, and I think in the situation that you're describing, Ryan, is that, you know, as much as I hate to say this, there are going to be situations where, you know, it, the answer may well be, I'm not going to go to medical school, at least not right now, because of the circumstances that are really insurmountable. Yeah. yeah and I've, I hate I've had, that. I've had conversations with, with a few students now who are in medical school, thriving, doing well but really struggled, not necessarily from a family responsibility perspective, but a working perspective because of their family responsibilities. One student specifically who will always stand out to me, Chad, who uh, was in undergrad uh, and married and uh, didn't do well because of, of needing to take care of his family and, and working during undergrad and then wanting to go to medical school. So he did a post back and still had work, still had his family to take care of. Didn't, didn't fix anything else that, that caused the issues did poorly in his post back program and tried to go to the Caribbean. Cause he's like, I'm not going to get into a U.S. school. The Caribbean rejected him. Cause oh, like, wow. it's super unusual, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Obviously, not a good student and <laughs> right. then finally was like you know what i i need to do what i need to do we're gonna go on on government assistance we're just gonna we're gonna bite the bullet this is my dream did an smp um and and finally stopped working and focused on school and did well and had two two acceptances to medical school oh that's awesome and is a fourth year now i believe at, at oh that's school. awesome so, what a cool story right, is that yeah right, that's yeah. awesome yeah, and you know we got an update from the student that the, um, uh, that you know the the significantly improved this you know family stuff has significantly improved, and so that's a good sign. And I, you know, kudos to you for for trudging forward and really working hard to make this happen for you. And and uh, you know, you know, I give you a lot of credit for um, for 
for you know going into the UNT program, and, and I I feel strongly. I think the the peer group that you have there. I hope that you're connecting with some other students there that are that are being um, supportive of you and, and and all that. And so you know I I think a lot of this is you know well I talk about resilience and and uh, and and really uh, you know the the this is absolutely. Uh, absolutely essential. So kudos to you, whoever you are. <laughs> um, let's talk about right now where we are uh, mid-November. It's a little bit mm -hmm. later this year because of COVID and everything happening right. in terms of interview invites and just the application cycle in general. I've been getting personally a lot of questions around sending updates to schools and, and really checking in with schools because students aren't hearing about interviews and things are delayed. Let's, let's talk about that process of once a student submits an application and they submit their secondary essay and they don't hear anything from schools, when is the first time you think it's okay to, to go knocking on the door saying, hello, like, did you forget about me? Yeah, in a normal year, <laughs> you know, in a normal year, it depends a little bit on the deadline of the uh, of the particular school, what their what their uh, application deadline is, and you know, I would say, you know, in the Texas world, you know, our our deadline was the same for all schools. It was October the first, and uh, and and I would usually tell students if they hadn't heard anything by Thanksgiving, then that's not a good sign. You know, because most of the schools are going to finish up the interviewing in late December, early January, uh, so that the 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 offers are going to go out end of January, early February, into mid February, and then you know things are going to be largely done, except for some alternate list activity and stuff later on. So I, I would tell students generally Thanksgiving. If you hadn't heard anything, then it's probably a good sign that you're not you know, going to hear anything. Now this year being as it is with COVID and all it's, it's a completely different ball game that they move the deadline back. Most of the schools are going to interview into, into late January. Uh, everything's been pushed back by largely two to two to four weeks uh, into the cycle. So I would say that's a difficult, difficult call because it depends on, it depends on the school. It depends on the school's deadline. It, it depends on their timeline in terms of how long are they going to interview and, and what's their interview cycle look like. And, and not to be discouraging, but I really believe that, you know, writing updates to schools and, and sending letters that say, oh, I love you and you're definitely my top choice and blah, blah, blah. I, I'm not really sure how effective that is, Frank. Yeah. Uh, you know, the schools have a process yeah. that applications go through review processes from, you know, various reviewers, and then they go into an interview cycle, and then they go at some point to the committee. And so let's say a letter comes in to the app, to the uh, school updating about whatever, something. I did a poster presentation or something. And it's in the middle of that process. What is the school supposed to do with that? Yeah. It's already been through the review part. Potentially, it's already been through the interviewers. 
it's going to go to the admissions committee, but in the mix of everything else, um, I, I just, I'm not sure how effective that really is. And the, and that also, I had a, a student I'm working with, uh, ask about thank you letters, uh, or thank you notes for, to the interviewers or whatever. And, you know, I, I think that sort of fits in the same context, the question about, you know, do I write a thank you note to my interviewer? Do I write a thank you note to the school saying, thank you for interviewing me or whatever. And, and while on the surface it sounds polite and courteous to do that, I don't, my own opinion is I don't think you should feel compelled to do that. I mean, can you imagine if a school gets 10,000 applicants <laughs> and if every applicant is interviewed by two interviewers, that's 20,000 <laughs> notes coming yep. into that school. I mean, it's just mind boggling. And so, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I get it in terms of the old world sort of courtesy and stuff of writing a handwritten note that says, thank you, I enjoyed our interview, blah, blah, blah. But when, when I was at Southwestern, we used to say, we, we would have interviewers who would call and say, what do I do with this? I got this note in the mail. I don't have an idea. I don't even remember the student. I don't know what to do with this note. Well, and it just means it was a bad thank you note. Yeah, you right. The student <laughs> and a bad interview. <laughs> now, it, you know, some interviewers only interviewed a few students in a given year, but there were we had some interviewers who would do, you know, quite a few dozens and dozens over the course of the season. Yeah. And uh, to say that they don't remember them may, may be overstating it. But, <laughs> but I would say, you know, I, I would always tell the interviewer, I would, I would say, you know, you can send it to us. We'll, we'll put it in their file, but I, I don't, it's not really going to do anything. You know, we actually, one year, uh, this was not uncommon. We would have a student would write a letter that said, oh, you know, you, your school, UT Southwestern Medical School is definitely my top choice, blah, 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 blah. And then later in the later in the letter, it said, I hope to be enrolling at Texas A&M Medical School. You know, you could tell they had mail merged it or that they had like, you know, updated it and they forgot to update one part of it. And it was just always like, oh, my gosh, you know, really? Uh, yeah, that's a big oversight there. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, I, I, I don't know. What's your, what is your opinion on those things? So I'm definitely a fan uh, of thank you letters, uh, partly because it's the old school kind of tradition. Um, but mm -hmm. I'm a fan of touch points. Uh, obviously, yeah. there's a balance between interruptions, which is a, right. a physical letter nowadays is more of an interruption than anything else. Right. An email is much easier. They can yeah. archive it. They can forward it. They can do whatever they want with it quickly. Right. Right. Um, right. But it's another touch point. And, and what it, it, it always comes back to this conversation that we have is there's the what and the so what. Right. Yep. Lots of students just do the what. They just send an email yeah. going, thank you for the interview. I hope yeah. to see you next year yeah. versus yeah. the so what being Dr. Dr. Smith. I really enjoyed our conversation about X, Y and Z. Um, I, I hope your daughter, blah, blah, blah. Right. Bringing yes. in the, the yes. personal conversation and actually yes. making an effort to to in, in being genuine about what you're doing so that it doesn't look like you're just going through the motions. There's a huge yes. difference there. Yeah, and, I agree. And, yeah. And and does it does it help you with your chances of getting in? Probably not. Is it one extra touch point 
for if you and some other student are down to the last seat and, and the interviewer goes, I really love that student and the, the, the letter that I got from him, like, could it happen? Sure. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so I'm a big fan of, of touch points in, in yeah. that sense um, and yeah. not just doing it because it's supposed to be done. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think if you're able to remember things in the, from the interviewer about stuff that y'all talked about and mentioned that in the, in the email you send, absolutely. I agree with that, that it really makes it personal. It makes it uh, more effective, you know, potentially. Uh, so I agree with that completely. It's just, if it's just a generic, thank you for interviewing me. I enjoyed our conversation. I, I don't see the point of it. Yeah, I agree. Interesting question here from a student who's been volunteering for five years and now being offered a paid position. Oh, wow. Um, th this, again, always comes up of is there a difference in the eyes of the admissions committee is the heart of this question. If, if I do it paid, is it bad? If I volunteer, is it good? That's what I'm guessing the heart of this question is. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. I mean, I what what I would say is again, it's the it's the what versus the so what here where I think what this says to me as an admissions committee member is that this volunteer was committed and that they were dependable and they showed up on time, they did the the hard work, that they really showed that they cared, you know, whatever the volunteer experience was. And, and, and what happened was it got noticed and they got offered a, a, a paid position. So I wouldn't see it as, as a bad thing, or I wouldn't see it as a, a, any kind of negative. Uh, I, I would see it as, wow, they, you know, this student really is, is, is top notch and the, the volunteer program uh, recognized that. And and wanted to move forward in in, in offering them a, a full time position or a paid position, and so yeah. uh, I don't see I don't see any ne anything negative in, in going for that. Yeah, or they could be COVID immune and just the last person standing. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> we true. We need a body. Fill it. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Hopefully, they're being recognized. For they're testing for COVID antibodies. And, <laughs> They find somebody that has them and they're going forward. <laughs> That's yes. funny. Yes. <laughs> That's um, funny. You know, um, going back to the, I wanted to, to, to mention yeah. this to you, Ryan, and, and ask you about this. Now, I, you know, we were talking earlier about working and working your way through graduate, through uh, undergrad and, and that, that medical schools, you know, for, for the vast majority, 99% of medical students, they, they just can't work. Yep. Uh, you know, it's just impossible to, to yep. work during medical school. But I do know some students, and I, and I think that you've mentioned this before about yourself, that some students who have very um, specific skills, uh, <laughs> such as programming. Like Liam or, Neeson. Yeah, that, that they can, there, it, it is possible to work if, if their specific skill set allows them to um, work at different hours or they can work whenever they want to. And they, you know, they're able to do it in little niches of time that they have and stuff like that. I mean, was that your experience in medical, in medical school? Well, I'll, I'll tell you that, that my experience is do what I say, not, a, not what I do. Um, right. I, I wasn't as educated, uh, about everything that it takes to 
get into medical school, get through medical school, match in the specialty of my dreams, et cetera. And so I made mistake, mistakes every step of the way, um, including working during medical school. Uh, I came in with a lot of debt, a lot of credit card debt, a lot of consumer debt that needed to be paid all the time. And I didn't have, uh, I didn't have parents who were wealthy that would help me. And, and so I worked because I needed to work. Um, and luckily, kind of going to that specific skill set, I had I was a personal trainer, and so I was uh, the like fitness manager up in Boston before I started medical school, where I managed all the trainers. And then when I went to New York for medical school, I worked uh, as a trainer at the the same gym. Uh, corporation had locations in New York as well. And so it allowed me to work one or two hours, but make really good money in those one or two hours so that I wasn't working like uh, a minimum wage job trying to make money where I'd have to work a lot more hours. So that, that right. helped, but it's a huge distraction from studying. And, and my logic behind it was, well, it's only two hours, but it's not just two hours. It's, it's the half an hour early, um, that I have to stop studying getting ready for a half an hour, driving for a half an hour, doing the work for two hours, lollygagging on the back end for another 15 wow. minutes, going home and driving for a half an hour, uh, unwinding for another half an hour. Your two hours of work has now turned into four hours of not studying. Yeah. And so it was a huge mistake for me, uh, especially for me, because I, I wanted to go into orthopedics, which again, I didn't really understand the whole process of needing to do well on step one and, and, and how important your board scores were to get into medical school. And, and again, this was 2005 that I started medical school. The internet wasn't what it is today. And so a lot of people think that, that I'm some chump out here on the internet telling students what to do. And they're like, he didn't even know what to do. I'm like, it was before the internet. Um, what was what it is now. And so anyway, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I made mistakes and I worked um, uh, freshman, freshman year, uh, first year, second year, mm -hmm. and even into third year during clinical rotations until I got to surgery. And surgery, my surgery rotation was the, the one that I was like, I can't work anymore. <laughs> like, I, I don't have time. This is taking up all of my time. And so that's when I stopped. But then I also had this yeah. hobby of, of being a computer programmer on the side and I wrote software and and ended up selling it later on. And so I, I made mistakes left and right, but I, I don't regret them because I wouldn't be here today if I, if mm. I did mention orthopedics. Yeah. So it's just yeah. the, yeah. the yeah. I made lots of mistakes. Well, I, you know, and, and I day. think, yeah, and I, I don't think, and the reason I ask that is I don't want students to go into this thinking that they can somehow carve out some time to work part-time or a little bit or whatever. I think you got to go into it thinking I'm my job, my full-time extra full-time super duper full-time job is being a medical student. And that is it. That's all I do. That's, all. that's, that's gotta, that's gotta be the, the, the go into it thinking. That is it. All right. Yeah. So I think we are at the end of Ask the Dean, episode yes. 25. Thank you, everyone, 25. for showing up live. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. for everyone watching on replay, go check out mapped, M-A-P-P-D dot com. And yep. uh, join for free for two weeks. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. See what it's check it out. Yeah, check it out for sure. Thanks, well, thank everyone. you, Dr. Gray. 
Good yeah, to see you. And uh, we will see you guys. Now we're doing it next week. Uh, we're Thanksgiving doing it next week. week. Yeah. yeah good. Yeah. Yeah. Let's party. We'll be here. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.